bearer of the word. We pray again for the health and wellness of the congregation. We do all these things and lift you up in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you didn't grow up in church, you wouldn't get that Leviticus joke. But um, I'm going to start out by describing something, and I want you to think of the answer in your mind. Okay? That's how I'm going to introduce what we're going to talk about. So the first one is this Can you answer, do you know the tallest mountain in the world? Just think of the answer in your mind. Okay, and here it is. I got it up here. Mount Everest, the tallest in the world. Okay. How about the longest river? Do you know which it is? Huh? Well, the answer is the Nile. I bet some of you said the Amazon, right? There's a whole, uh, you can read, some, some people might disagree with that. It's close. It's close. But the Nile. You know what? How about the largest jungle. You know the largest jungle? The Amazon. Okay, we'll give, them the, we'll give Amazon, they get the jungle. Okay, even though the river is pretty close to the Nile. Okay, now this next one's got three on it. Okay, you have to think of three answers. Okay, can you name, what do you think is the greatest writing of antiquity? That's an old, old writing, old book. And then also the greatest sculpture and the greatest painting. What comes to your mind? Think of three answers there. Okay. Here we go. We got David, right? That's the, the statue there. The Mona Lisa. And then the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. Now, now I admit, these are a little bit subjective. Somebody might have a different opinion about those. You know, Mount, Mount Everest, that's not subjective. I mean, that is, that's fact. We know how tall the mountains are. Okay. Now, I'm giving you this list of superlatives, this gifts of this list of the greatest, because here's my next question. Show me this next, the next slide is the Bible. 66 books written over 1,500 years on three different continents by 40 different authors. Now, my question to you is, which is the greatest book in the Bible? Now, see, this is why Steve gave it away. That's why he did that whole thing, you know. And I, I set this whole thing up, and then everyone, well, he already told us what you're preaching on. But I want you to, what, what, what do you fill in the blank with? What do you think? What is the greatest book in the Bible? Okay. Well, I'm going to say Romans. And this is what we're going to be preaching on. Now, you might say, Pastor, that's subjective as well. I know, it could be. However... What I want to do is take a moment before we start this series to impress upon you this book, its magnitude, its depth, and the historical impact it had both on the history of the church but on Christianity and some of the greatest theologians and converts we've ever known on the planet. First of all, let me just describe its theological depth. If you start at the very beginning, verse 1, and go through the whole book, its depth is tremendous. Chapter 1, verse 4, the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of Christ's deity, verse 3, 
doctrine of Christ's humanity. See how I'm just sequentially walking through the book and refining major doctrines of the Bible. The doctrine of faith. We're not even out of chapter 1 yet. The doctrine of judgment. The doctrine of sin and depravity. The doctrine of justification. You keep going through the book. The doctrine of reconciliation. The doctrine of sin. The doctrine of grace and eternal life. The doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of security. The doctrine of election. The doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation. The doctrine of Christian living. And the doctrine of the second coming of Christ and the judgment of believers. There's a lot there. The depth of the book is immense. In fact, one writer, as I was prepping for this, described it this way. Not only every sentence teems with thought, but every clause. While in some places every word may be said either to suggest some weighty thought or to indicate some deep emotion. Every sentence, every clause, it's got depth. Now, I give that to you because I want you to understand, we're going to tackle a book. Some pastors I know spent more than five years preaching every Sunday through it. Now, we're not going to do that. I don't usually preach series that are that long, but it's a lot to tackle. In fact, as a pastor now here, I've been preaching a decade or more, and I've always had Romans up there. And I start to think all the books we've covered, sometimes we cover a topic like heaven, but we work through books primarily, and we go verse by verse through books. And I've always had it in my mind, someday we're going to try to tackle Romans. Now, the depth and the magnitude, I'm giving that to you, I want you to see it. But then I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to talk about its simplicity. It's both. It's not one without the other. We have this thing called the Romans Road. Maybe you've heard of it. What is the Romans Road? It's like a pathway that you walk on, a road, step by step going down a road. And each step you take is one aspect of the gospel message. If I wanted to tell somebody what the gospel was, how to be saved... We have this thing in Christianity called the Romans Road. And essentially what it is, is Romans has everything in it. You can find everything you would need to stepping along the way to try to lead someone to salvation. For example, step number one, everyone needs salvation, Romans 3.23. Now in my Bible, you can go to Romans 3.23, and it's the starting. All I have to do is, rem is remember the first one. Because right next to Romans 3.23, I'll write the, the next verse that I step over to. But Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you're talking to someone about salvation. If, you, if you're someone here and you aren't sure about salvation, you're not sure about what the gospel is, this is it right here. Step number one, everyone falls short of the glory of God, meaning we are, we are all sinners. We are all people who have broken rules, broken laws. We are not perfect. And many of us are very good at hiding some of the bad stuff we have done. But for sure, all of us fall short of God's glory. 
And then see, I would take a step over in my Bible. It tells me 5.8. And I go over to chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the first thing is to understand we're all sinners. And then we, we give him this peace along the road that says, but God loves us. He shows his love even though we're sinners, even though we're lawbreakers. Christ died for us. And you go on to step three, salvation is a free gift. Chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, whenever I'm presenting this to someone, I, I like to pick up on that word wage. Wages, that's, that's a word we use in, in modern day vernacular, right? A wage is there's minimum wage, and it's how much you make. You go and you work an hour, and you get this much money for that hour. That's what a wage is. It's something that you earn. You do something, and you get something. You are owed something. And Paul goes and takes that word, and he says, you've earned something. The wage of your sin is death. That's what you have earned. In our civilizations of the world, we have rules. When you break the rules... There are consequences, and Paul lays out in Romans, we, we are all lawbreakers, and the result of our lawbreaking is death. However, there's this thing, but the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We go on to number four, we're saved by grace, chapter 11, verse 6, but if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I like a, a, a different one. We're saved by grace. Chapter 11, verse 6. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. That's just a different translation. And I like that one because it really emphasizes free. And see, if you, if you are trying to keep the rules because you think that that somehow makes you more desirable in God's eyes, there's an aspect of your understanding about salvation that has works in it. It's free. Salvation is free. And when we try to keep the rules, when we try to, man, I'm feeling guilt because of decisions I've made, so I'm going to go to church a lot, or I'm going I'm to do some things that help my conscience feel better about the bad things I've done. This is not what Paul teaches. You go through Romans. It, that makes it not free. God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. I go on to number five, salvation comes through faith. Pastor, how do we get saved then? Paul says in chapter four, verse five, that people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sins. And he introduces this faith, faith, faith. I like how he uses the word counted, counted as righteousness. It's like, it's like you get the credit for it. What is righteousness? This is going to be one of the key words we look at. Even later today, I'm going to talk a little bit more about righteous. But it has to do with right standing. He looks at you 
and you have right standing before him. How did we get it? It was counted to you. Why? Because of faith. Faith in what? Faith in what Christ did. He came. The free gift is that he took your place. The wage that you earned was death. He took your place. He died for you on the cross. Now, number six is God saves all who call upon Him. Chapter 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's going to talk a lot about that, through the, especially comparing Gentiles and Jews. And It doesn't matter where you come from, who you are. Salvation is for all who call upon the name of the Lord. I like another verse I use personally. Chapter 10, verses 9 to 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For from the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now I like this verse because it gives you kind of the how-to. Sometimes somebody says, well, okay, I recognize I'm a sinner and I need Christ, but what do I do? And you can go to this verse, and it has two things in there, right? You confess with your mouth, you say it here, but that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raises from the dead, you'll be saved, for with the heart one believes, that's in here, right? And with the mouth one confesses. So the two parts are first, because sometimes a person's sorting it out in here. They're working it out. What do I really believe about this? And oh, am I really that bad? And they're working it out. And God might lead them to a point where they say, I need Christ. And you say it here. That's why sometimes I ask a person, have you ever said a prayer? Why, why is the prayer important? Because the prayer is something that it comes out of the mouth. That's what Paul's saying. You have to make a public confession that you believe. Christ's death was public. And he calls all those to follow him to make a public confession. Today, after this service, you're invited to come outside and see a baptism. You know what that is? That's a public display of everyone who's baptized, that they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, that's the Romans wrote. Now, my father shared that with me when I was a child. Now, just think about all the deep doctrines that I said are in the book. I became a believer in Christ, and I didn't know all those doctrines. And so there's a way in which you can look at Romans and go, it's got depth, but there's a simplicity to it that a child can understand and needs. And over time, I grow, I grow, and you begin to, to grapple with some of those truths, and sometimes it's like, that water is too deep. Paul uses the analogy of milk and meat, doesn't he? Milk is what babies eat. Romans has milk for those children, spiritual children. But it's got a lot of meat too. And as you get older, sometimes a child might read something and go, oh, I'm going to choke on that. It's like an infant giving them a piece of meat. It's got both in there. But the milk's there. And I grew on that. And I grew up, and Romans was such a great book for... Uh, like that quote that I read, every sentence, every clause, teeming with something. The challenge 
that it brought. The Romans Road, it's right there. And I'm, I'll confess, somebody came up to me afterwards and says, I like to use this one. It's not set in stone. You could have a different verse for some of those, you know. But the, but, but the basic idea is you can go to Romans and walk through it and present in simplicity the gospel message. Now, as I prepped all this, I, in my mind, I thought, you know, Romans Road. I've never heard of the Galatian Road or the Corinthians Road or the First Timothy Road. And that says something about the book of Romans, that it has within it this vast depth from here to here. Some of the other books you could find most of those or maybe only one or two of those, but in Romans you can walk through all of them. So we see this, the depth and yet also simplicity of Romans. Now, I want you to see the depth. I want you to also see the simplicity. And I want you to understand before we start in the study, the impact this book had on Christianity and the church. And as I prepped this series, uh, somewhere along the way, I thought, wow, there are so many quotes by famous Christians, by uh, church fathers, by some of the greatest theologians, all attesting to the impact of this book on them personally. And I began to collect them. I had this, this notebook and I just began to write down all these names. I wanted to share some with you. For example, John Chrysostom. And just, you can see also I put the years. So I want you to see throughout time. One of the earlier church uh, fathers, he uh, had the book of Romans read to him one time every week. He made sure throughout his whole after whatever point he started, every week for the rest of his life, he read through the book of Romans. Now, I don't know about you, but at some point I'd be like, okay, let's get something new here. <laughs> right? You know? But that speaks to its, its depth. Even now when I read it, there are times where I go, hmm. You know? Um, I had a class I remember once where, where it talked about the great theologians and there were the five greatest theologians. We're gonna, I'm going to give you three of them right here. The first one is this guy named Augustine of Hippo, which he was a pastor, served in what is modern-day Al Algiers, but he didn't start out that way. He grew up, his mother had faith, but he abandoned the faith. And Augustine of Hippo said, I'm going to live life my own way. And he was uh, an immoral man. He fathered a child out of wedlock. But later in life, he wrote. And he has a book called Confessions where he talks about his life. And when he was living in Milan, he went and heard the Bishop uh, Ambrose preaching, who was a powerful preacher, and his preaching moved him. And God began to work in his heart. And in his book Confessions, he this is the quote I'm going to read you. He said, The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. Suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or girl. Pick up and read. So I took the book of the apostle, Romans, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. Not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. I neither wished or needed to read further at once with the last words of this sentence. It was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart and all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Augustine went on to become one of the greatest theologians, a pastor that the church has ever seen. And his significance is great because there's about a thousand years where there wasn't a lot of great writing. And his writing held up during that time. I mean, as a pastor, you, I have a library. And I'm always like, what's, who's, I need to get this book, put it in my li- library. And, oh, did you hear about this book? This, you know, K- Piper wrote a new book or Can you imagine a thousand years? What's out there? Nothing. What you got in your library? I haven't got anything new. And here, uh, Augustine of Hippo was the great writer for a thousand years. And he's important because, and I'm, I'm giving this to you, Romans God used to bring him out of that life of walking away from God In his writings, and I'm going to use this word right here, domino, like dominoes fall and impact another one, and it falls and impacts another one. The writings of Ambrose were a great domino that fell and impacted hundreds of years later. Very famous people. For example, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, one of the most significant theologians, and in some ways an activist because he stood up to the Catholic Church at a time when they were teaching falsehoods. And that's what he's famous for. He hung on the door, right? 95 things that they were teaching that were wrong. And then he ended up going on trial, uh, imprisoned. But Martin Luther called Romans the chief book of the New Testament, and it was the heart of the Reformation. You know why? Because of this phrase, and I'm going to come back to it, the just shall live by faith. And that's what the great challenge was in Martin Luther's day. Justification by faith alone, not works. And Romans equipped him, he read it, it empowered him to battle the great fight of the Reformation. But Martin Luther was impacted by the writings of of Augustine of Hippo. And then we have a contemporary of Martin Luther, John Calvin, also one of the greatest theologians and pastors ever, but also of the Reformation. He said that Romans was his entrance to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. The subject then of these chapters may be stated thus, man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which being offered by the gospel is apprehended by faith. Maybe you've heard of John Bunyan. John Bunyan sat in a Bedford jail, studied the book of Romans, and inspired him to write Pilgrim's Progress, something you probably have read or seen. John Wesley, he was reading the preface of Martin Luther's writings on the book of Romans. There's the dominoes I'm talking about. Martin Luther, impacted by this guy, he writes, and then John Wesley's reading Luther's, and John Wesley said that his heart 
was strangely warmed in conversion and became the catalyst of the great evangelical revival of the 18th century. Now, do you know who John Wesley was? John Wesley and his brother, they, they put boxes on the street and stood up on them and preached on the street. And from that grew a revival in England that became the Wesleyan church today. And even an offshoot of the Wesleyan church, the Methodist church. The book of Romans, the writing of Luther, see this domino effect that it has had, the impact that it has had. I wanted to give you some contemporaries of today, John Stott. It was Paul's uh, devastating exposure of universal human sin and guilt in Romans 1, which rescued me from that kind of superficial evangelism which is preoccupied only with people's felt needs. Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, his arguments from Romans devastated liberal Christianity. Leon Morris was a New Testament scholar. He said it may be because Romans is the greatest treatise on God that has ever been written that the letter has figured prominently in every significant evangelical renaissance in history. If you want to start a revival, preach the book of Romans. Bruce Metzger, a Princeton professor, he called Romans the constitution of universal Christianity. And then lastly, J.I. Packer, someone that you may have heard of, he said there's one book in the New Testament which links up with almost everything that the Bible contains. That is the epistle to the Romans. In it, Paul brings together and sets out in systematic relation all the great themes of the Bible. Do you see what I'm getting at? I mean, for me as a pastor, Romans has been up here, and I've been, someday I'm going to get to that. Someday I want to preach that book. But the depth, the magnitude, the impact that it's had, we can't, we can't overlook that. Here at the outset, when we're going to break this book down and begin to study it, I want us to see how God has used the writings of Paul. And so I've called the series The Romans Road, right? The, the Road of Faith. The Road of Faith. And I'm going to unpack that just a little bit. Uh, here today, because <clears throat> generally when I preach a book, the very first message, I lay out some of its major themes, but man, Romans is deep. There's so much I could give you, and what I decided to do is I want to give you three words, three words, and they're some of the most common words that you're going to find as we go through this book. Number one, the word righteousness. Now, it appears 91 times in the New Testament but in the book of Romans, we find it 35, which means roughly one out of every three times that the word righteousness is used in the New Testament, you're going to find it right here in the book of Romans. It's one of the major themes of the book. Number two, the word faith. It occurs 55 times in the book. And I just pulled an example out, chapter 14, verse 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. And that's why I think that this book has a lot of cultural rele relevance for us today here in Guam, because I know, I know what's in the culture of Guam, a tendency to lean on ritual and ceremony of religion. If I come and do the prayers, if I make the confession, if I'm there for the, the, the church meetings and partake of the, that somehow we tend to put our faith in that in, this, in the, the action, but that's works. And Paul's going to deconstruct that as we go through the book. 
when you're done with this book, absolute 100%, your faith has got to be in the work of Jesus Christ. Anything else, Paul says, is sin. If you think that you are making yourself more presentable to God because of things that you do, keeping rules, following ceremony in religion, that's sin. That is, that is not faith. And then thirdly, so we've got righteousness, we've got faith, and then Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the center of it all. He, he's mentioned 70 times in the book, every single chapter talks about Him. And you put these things together, right? Faith in what Jesus Christ did for you brings about righteousness, a right standing before God. Now, i got to give you more than just key themes in history, right? I want to take you to what I think is the key verse in the book, and this is going to be a short little mini sermon right here at the end. We're going to break it down and give you four thoughts on the verse, but it's Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the four thoughts I want to give you today to jump us into this book. Number one, do not be ashamed because the gospel is power. This is what Paul says, I'm not ashamed. And just, I want you to think about this for a second because I, am, I would w wager that everybody sitting here has had a time where, the, where you were ashamed. You were ashamed of the label Christian, ashamed of the gospel in some way. I mean, culture itself grades against, here's a way to think of it, the values that we should uphold as Christians don't jive all the time with the values of the cultures that we live in. What does culture say about relationship? What does culture say about, about marriage and sex and, and what kind of rules are right and wrong? This kinds of things can make us uncomfortable. You're, you're in the company of people who have these and you're ashamed to maybe even bring it up to say. We can be ashamed sometimes when we engage because, I mean, let's think of it this way. Here's another way to think of it. Science might be a way to push back. Oh, science, science is all natural. There's, it doesn't, it's, there's no God. And to try to engage that. There are academic arenas where if you try to come into them with the belief of something supernatural, you'll be laughed at. Shame. I'm ashamed. I don't want to have to engage that. Do you, see, do you see where I'm getting at? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is the power unto salvation, right? And what does he mean by that? If you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I don't want to be ashamed, well, what's this power thing? Tim Keller says the power, this is the power of God in verbal form. It's a way to think about it. So let's just think about power for a second. Let's think about power. I think of it in this way. How much power, and if we could use science, how much power was in the atomic bomb dropped Hiroshima? And then how much 
uh, power can we describe exists in the sun? It's, it's, it can be described as this many nuclear bombs exist in the, in the power of, of the sun. And our sun's this big. And we go over here to this universe and we find a sun that's this big. We can fit, you know, a million of this, of our suns in that sun. So how many nuclear bombs are in that? I mean, there's so much power. Just that. We're just, we're just going to use atomic bombs and suns for a second to think about power. And yet those suns, S-U-Ns, those suns, God spoke into existence. What kind of power does it take to be in a, in a being? Let there be light. I don't know if there was that sound effect. But he spoke it, and it came into existence. And now here Paul's saying the gospel. I'm not ashamed because the gospel is power. And I love Tim Keller says the gospel is power in verbal form. And then you go, okay, that helps some, but, you know. And so then i got to steal this from Keller, continue to steal from him. He goes, it's kind of like a pepper. You know, on the outside, it's like cold and, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, but you can chop it up and, and uh, you get one of those little seeds, you know. What's the, the worst, the ghost pepper? And you put that into your mouth and you bite down on it and then what happens? Like it's just this little cold seed. I mean, it's like. There's no power in that. And then you in, ingest it, you internalize it, and you chew it, and you start to feel a burning sensation in your mouth, and suddenly your lips. And I mean, I remember, I, look, I've told you before, I don't do well with spicy. I get teased that, you know, Kevin, ketchup is your spicy sauce. And I remember we were hanging with the Graves once. They ordered some pizza. They like spicy. Denise had this pizza. It had some, I think, boonie peppers on it, and there's the little seeds in there. I, and no one told me. I pick up a pizza, I take a bite, I'm chewing it, and next thing I know, I'm sweating, and I'm like, was there peppers on this? And I'm turning red, and it's like I can feel it like here, and you know, and I can breathe again at least. That's a positive, you know. But, <laughs> but see, Paul's saying, verbal, Keller's saying verbal form. Just like that seed, you, you put it in, you, 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 in, you ingest it, you, you chew on it. You need to take Romans. You need to take God's Word and internalize it, ingest it, because the power is inherent in the seed. Even Jesus said the gospel is like this seed. Well, what do you mean? You take a seed, you plant it in there, and it goes into this gigantic tree. Where did that come from? It's all inside the seed. God made it that way. Gospel in verbal form, God made it that way. You bring it inside of you. You dwell on it. You chew on it mentally. You have discussions. In our small groups, at some point, there's going to be debates about what Paul's talking about. That's fine because it's power. It's power from the inside that's going to come out. It's going to change your heart. Just like those guys I was telling you about, those great theologians. I read one verse, and it changed me, convicted me. We are not ashamed because the gospel is power. Take it in personally. Find it full of power. See how God uses it and grows it within you. Number two, the gospel has no boundaries except one. When you read this, it says, let's read it again. For I'm not ashamed. The gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in that phrase, he's giving you two things. First of all, Jews and Greeks. There's no boundaries, no racial boundaries, no ethnic boundaries. There are no boundaries for the gospel. It is for everyone who what? What? Did you say speaks? Believes. Everyone who believes. Let me read it again. Okay? All right. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Which means the, the one boundary it has is belief. You can't have the gospel power without putting faith in it. Bring it in. Let it work on you. But Paul says, look, there's no boundaries here except your own unbelief. And when you go through the book, it's going to challenge you in ways. It's going to challenge the parts that you might struggle with when it comes to faith. What, what, how will God use it in you? Um, so you see in that one statement, ultimate inclusivity. Yet it still has an exclusivity to it, doesn't it? Number three, the gospel gives us good standing. Now, this is where I'm coming back to that word righteous. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And what I want to point out here is that um, the word righteous is a positional word. So it's being used in a way to describe you before someone. And you say, a way I might illustrate it is to say, what is your position right now before the IRS? How about that one? Right? What's your position before the police, before local authorities? What's your position? You see what I'm getting at? What's your position at work? How do they look at you? And each one of those, you could say, the IRS, I'm all good. Some guy might say, I got, I got a lot of back taxes, or there's some stuff hidden. If they ever uncover, I'm in trouble. So your standing might appear good like the person doing works, but really it's not. Policeman pulls you over. Can I have your license, registration? They go back, they do their thing, they come back. What are they going to say? I found 21 unpaid parking tickets here, sir. <laughs> ah, your standing is not perfect, is it? Right? You say in each one of those, that's what he means by righteousness. It's right position before God. And the reality is, and what he's trying to give you through the book, is your position is not good. You're, you're a rebel. You have broken his rules. I mean, there's a thousand unpaid parking tickets. I mean, you have all kinds of taxes that you owe. Your position isn't good. But then he comes here and he says this. He says what? Let me read it again. Everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So when you put your faith in what Christ did, because see, Christ, it's not just the death, it's also the fact that he lived as a man and never broke one law. He was perfect. And when God looked at him, he saw perfection. Morally 
perfect. And when we put our faith in that, God gives us that record. He looks at us and He sees not your imperfection. He sees the perfection of His Son. Later in the New Testament, they describe it as putting on a white robe. Like now, it's, it's to signify purity. Like you, you didn't break the rules. Well, you did, but the penalty for that, Christ went and died for you, but it didn't end there. He then gave you His perfect record. And that's how God views you. So He's saying in the gospel, we find righteousness. We find the right record. But not only that, and this is the last point, so God gives us good standing, but we, we maintain good standing by faith. Because He says this, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, I think that's an interesting point. Because a lot of us, the way that you're living is from faith for works. And that's what Paul wants to correct. He's correcting that the birth of becoming a believer in Christ, and now you're a child of God, you're in His family. Now that I put my faith and I, I become that, now moving forward in my life, don't depend on the works. You can't depend on the record, your own record. You're still going to fall short on a day-to-day basis of God's glory. But from faith, for greater faith in your life. And I look at this two ways. I think there's two ways you could take this. From faith, for faith. It could go back to the domino. God brings about faith in a man like Augustine of Hippo. And he falls as a domino hitting Martin Luther. Martin Luther falls as a domino the impact of other people's life. I already told you, I became a Christian when I was a child. How? From faith. My father. My father was a believer in Christ before me. He came to me. He brought faith to me. From faith. For faith. I put my faith in the message of the gospel he brought to me. There's a way in which you impact other people. Faith to faith. But secondly, I'm going to say, from faith for faith is that God is growing your faith. You put your faith in the, the message, that Romans road, but now as you walk through life, you tend to come back and put faith in other things. That's why you continue to fall short of God's glory. That's why you, could, you, you break rules. Uh, why are you doing that? when you know God doesn't want you to do that over there because I get something out of it. It brings me, I have a, a perception that I need that to give me satisfaction. I have a perception that I need that for security. I have a perception that I need that for some reason. You fill in the blank. That's a lack of faith. Christian maturity is Christ alone. And you, you one of the reasons you, you gain the, the ground and the maturity to not break the rules is because you, you grow in your faith that I, I don't need. That's replacing Christ. Somehow I've let this come into my life and it's, it's moving Christ over there. This is my idol. I care a lot about what people think about me. I care a lot about my, my um, bank account. I care whatever it is. Somehow it can move Christ to the side. It's a lack of faith. Faith is 
I can say no to things because I find everything in Christ. And so from faith for faith, that's maturing. You're growing from that birthing faith to greater faith day by day by day. Now, I, I want to put this in here. I'll, I'm, I'm going to be able to talk about this again in the series, but I really think this has a lot of... Um, it, what I am saying to you grades against something that I see in the culture of Guam. Because Guam is very religious. It's very religious. It has a history of being religious. And I, I in the, more than the de- decade that I've lived here, I've, I know people and I can see a dependency on works specifically connected to religion, going to the services, going and partaking in communion, in confessing sin, in depending on other people praying for you. These are, these are the DNA of Guam culture. And there's a way in which I want to get at that through this series to say that, that that's a form of works. It's not faith. And to be careful of that, we don't become righteous from our faith and then try to maintain righteousness through our goodness or our works of righteousness. Does that make sense? You can't. You are right before God. Going to church and doing all those things don't make you more right. You have the righteousness of Christ. It's one of the deep doctrines of Romans. It's an imputation that he gives you. The righteousness of Christ from faith for faith. But I'm going to finish this today with the last little phrase. So it's from faith for faith. And then Paul writes this. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that's an interesting phrase. The righteous shall live by faith. So I just said you are you are um, right, you are righteous, it's Christ's righteousness, now you live by faith. Going forward, your faith is that your position before God is secure because He sees the righteousness of Christ. But that phrase, the just shall live by faith, interesting phrase, I want to read to you a couple things about it. This is a quote from, from Bishop Lightfoot, he's a pastor in England, he says, these words represent the concentration and epitome of all revealed religion. The whole law, now listen to this, the whole law was given to Moses in 613 precepts. In other words, here's 613 rules, laws that you follow. In a way, they represent Christ because if you murder, it's a violation of the holiness of Christ. 613, right? So just stay with me for a second. The whole law given to Moses, 613 precepts. David, in the 15th Psalm, brings them all within the compass of 11. Isaiah reduces them to 6. Micah to 3. Isaiah, in a later passage, to 2. But Habakkuk condenses them all into 1. The just shall live by faith. In other words, it went from the just shall keep 613 rules to the just shall live by faith by faith. Do you see that? He summarizes that. Now that phrase, it's only found four times in the Bible. Four times. The just shall live by faith, right there. 
in Habakkuk, here in Romans, Paul's quoting Habakkuk, but it's also in Galatians 3 and in Hebrews 10. And one of my favorite pastors, David Jeremiah, about this, and he's going to take us back to uh, Martin Luther, and this is what I'll close with. And on these occasions, this is the just shall live by faith phrases, they had an impact on the life of Martin Luther. First, in the quietness of his monk's cell when Romans was burned into his heart. Second, when the words of Romans 1.17 came to him at a time of deathly illness, when he was afraid he would die in his sins, the just shall live by faith, comforted him in a strange way, and he recovered. Finally, when performing indulgences in Rome to gain merit before God, the light of justification by faith broke into his heart. He returned to Germany, a reborn monk, to ignite the Protestant Reformation. And that's a way to circle back to tell you what a significance and historical impact the book of Romans has had on Christianity for thousands of years. That's why I say it's the greatest book. We're going to study it, and I hope it has an impact on you. Father, thank you for the time to introduce what I believe the greatest book in the New Testament, greatest summary of doctrines and theologies contained in one book, in your word. Thank you for the testimonies of so many great theologians and pastors and men of faith, the impact the book had on them. And I just pray your blessing between now and summer, the, the months that we will study this book, that you would bring to our church and the people sitting here an impact that it would challenge them. If every sentence and phrase teems with something, theological depth, emotion, and we see that men like Augustine and Martin, just one verse turned their world upside down. They gave themselves wholly to you. Lord, you could use this book. I've already referenced the fact that every significant revival in the history of the church, you can find the book of Romans attached to it in some way, either impacting the, the leader or it's being preached. So I pray, Lord, within our church, a revival of our own hearts, that we will grow from faith to faith, that there will be those in here who maybe they need to take that birthing step of faith, that Romans road, to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. And some in here are adolescent Christians, some in here are old and mature Christians, and yet there's something for all of us, milk to meat and potatoes. I pray that you would grow us, you would challenge us. And in the end, we'd be healthier and stronger in our faith, in our doctrine, in our security of our salvation, all of it leading us towards grateful hearts for what you've done, this free gift of salvation. I lift it up in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand up. We're going to sing. And I just want to remind you today is communion, which means during this song, you're preparing your heart to come forward to take one of these little cups and when the song's over, we're all going to partake and remember, remember Christ. So during the song, as you're worshiping and singing, when you're ready, 
come forward and take a cup. Go back and wait, and at the end, we'll partake together. Thank you.